0: I'm one of the pastors here. I'm really glad to see some of you here this morning. We're so glad that you joined us. I'd love a chance to meet you if I haven't yet, so uh, come up and and introduce yourself to me if you get a chance. Um, I am standing here on the Sheridan School stage, which is an obvious statement now that I said it out loud, and um, this is where one of our community members, Thompson Eder and Comey, stood to speak to the Black History Month month convocation for Sheridan School. As a Nigerian-American entrepreneur himself, he had a chance to share some of his story with the students from Sheridan, which is so awesome. And I just wanted to mention that because it's a huge celebration that Thompson got to do that. Um, and he said he loved it, but he was noting how vastly different this room is when it's full of children that are in K through eight or K through five. okay? So um, we it's such a huge privilege for us to be able to worship here in the school and to serve the school in various ways. and having Thompson share his story uh, is amazing. and I'm so glad he got to do that. so, in honor of that opportunity that Thompson had and so many other people. Today when I pray, um, we always pray for Sheridan. We always pray for the students. But can I ask you just to, I'll just give like a moment of silence, just to pray in your heart for the students that will sit in the seat that you're sitting in and maybe the seats around you uh, probably tomorrow. Um, Just pray whatever God puts on your heart for them to pray um, when I give a, a moment to pause, okay? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the privilege that it is to be here to worship you openly and freely in this public school. God, Sheridan has been a gift to us for almost 10 years now. Uh, What an incredible opportunity to come and to be here and to to store all of our massive amounts of children's things in the basement. God, we, we love this school. We know your heart beats for them. And we pray, God, in Jesus' name, that you would be present in the lives of these students, faculty, staff, the parents, the families of these students, Um, So right now, God, just hear our prayers for the students that will be sitting here in these seats within 24 hours. God, hear our prayers. God, as we are here this morning, we want to hear from you. I pray, God, that you would be speaking to each person here. Maybe it's through something that we're going to say as we look at scripture, but maybe there's something else you want to say to them today. God, we invite your presence. We invite your Holy Spirit to be here and to make a difference in our lives. I pray, God, that we would be different people when we leave here today than when we came in, and for one reason, and that is that you are here and you are with us. We thank you for your love. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So some of you know, not everybody knows me here, but some of you know that I spent the last half of this week uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina, at the funeral for the evangelist Billy Graham. My mom was actually at the funeral and I was watching on a screen nearby Um, because my family has close relationships with the Graham family. My parents worked for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association for almost 30 years My dad was the director of international ministries for about 12 of those years. So that meant that he oversaw everything that the Billy Graham ministry did outside the United States. And he was still doing that role when he died in 2000 uh, at the Mayo Clinic here in Rochester. And um, so for for me and my family, it's crazy to think about the end of the era kind of marked by the loss and the the death of this man. Of course, Mr. Graham himself talked all the time about how much he looked forward to this day because he believed that he would be with Jesus. and uh, So it's it's a bittersweet time. Um, But this is why I live in Minneapolis. My family is here in Minneapolis because the headquarters for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association used to be in Minneapolis for almost 50 years, I think. And then it's now since moved down to North Carolina. Um, But I I share that with you in part just to say that, yeah, it's been a really weird emotional week for my family. Uh, It's been really strange and bittersweet. Mr. Graham did my baby dedication when I was a baby. He was there when uh, my dad passed away. I can't even remember the first time I was at a Billy Graham crusade. I was so little. And uh, he prayed for me when I decided to go to seminary. And so, yeah, it's it's emotional and it's meaningful. But I would also say it it feels like a really empowering week for me. It feels really empowering to me because people are always asking, like, is there going to be another Billy Graham? Who's going to be the next Billy Graham? And I just think that's a really silly question, to be honest. (laughs) Because there's never going to be another Billy Graham. But I've just reflected this week. You know, there's never going to be another Stephanie O'Brien. And there's never going to be another one of you either. And we each have this opportunity to be people who live out the same good news that Mr. Graham talked about it. And we do that in our own ways. Most of us, it's not going to be in tent meetings and, and baseball stadiums, that's for sure. But it's going to be around coffee tables and water coolers and in your neighborhoods and in your workplaces. And not only talking about it, but living, being good news people who live that out. We talk about that here all the time. At Mill City. So I, I had this sense of feeling really empowered as I thought about how uh, this good news is something that we all get to live out and get to share, and obviously in a very different way than Mr. Graham did. But we're sharing this good news that what Jesus did is death and resurrection on the cross makes the wrong things right. It makes all the wrong things right. And if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, that's the conversation we've been having, making wrong things right. This conversation uh, uh, that we're having in this time of Lent as we look forward to Easter, Uh, The theological word for the conversation we're having is the theology of atonement. Theology of atonement. So I'm just going to put a very brief definition. Atonement, all that Jesus accomplished on the cross. That's what the word means. It's kind of a a thick theological word, but at at its core it means all that Jesus accomplished on the cross. So we're having this conversation about a theology of atonement. So you can imagine for me being a little girl who watched this man who was larger than life. I mean, he was six foot three, so he was a large man. But to me, he was just larger than life, and he would be preaching about this reality of what Jesus accomplished on the cross so many times. I can't even remember how many times I heard him give this message. So you can see why this is maybe a passionate topic for me in my life. Uh, On one hand, the experience of growing up, I always call it being a Billy Graham kid. Uh, It's kind of like being part missionary kid, part pastor's kid, and part, like, carny. Because you think about it, it's the Crusades. Anyway, if you don't get that, we'll talk about it later. Um, but I, you guys, I don't even know, but I bet that I personally witnessed over 100,000 people come forward to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior and leader of their life. I bet that I was in the room for over 100,000 people having that experience. These people coming forward and, and yes, maybe a very simple moment of understanding, but what they were saying in that moment was, I want what Jesus did to make wrong things right to be true for me. And when I think about the fact that I got to see that many people have that moment, it kind of blows me away. And the choir would sing this song. Some of you are familiar with the Billy Graham movement and the mass evangelism movement. And, and the Billy Graham gatherings, they always had this song that was sung when Mr. Graham invited people to choose Jesus, and it was the song, Just As I Am. And people would sing this song, Just As I Am, I Come. And Mr. Graham would be saying very clearly, you are loved and accepted by Jesus just as you are. You don't have to figure it out. You don't have to make all the wrong things right in your own life because that's what Jesus is going to do for you. And I heard him say over and over, God loves you. And if you ever heard Mr. Graham say that, you can hear his voice. God loves you. No matter what, no matter what's happened to you, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, God loves you. Come just as you are. And he would read various biblical texts. During his sermons at these crusades, I would sometimes be there for five days in a row. Five days in a row. Who was at the one in 1996 at the Metrodome? I know some of you were. I was there in the dugout for all five nights, and I was like a preteen. And I was like, we are here a lot. This is We've been here for a long time. Are we coming here every night? Um, and Mr. Graham would, would preach from different texts. But almost every single sermon, he quoted a verse, which is actually the passage we're going to talk about today. A verse out of uh, Romans 3, Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you better believe when I was a little kid, I memorized that one because it was short. I also memorized the shortest one. You know what that one is? Jesus wept. Yep, see? I knew if I said that, I'd find out all the other Bible quiz nerds you have, you have shown yourself. Because you're like, Mom, I learned another one. Jesus wept. Boom. And some of us did the Bible quiz thing for the candy bars. But then Jesus was like, yeah, but now you have that all in your heart and you can't get it out of there. Some of you weren't Bible quiz nerds, and if you weren't, that is okay, my friends. But for some of us, it's just a moment of realization of who we were and who we still are. But Mr. Graham would say over and over, God loves you. God loves you in your sin. God loves you in your brokenness. God loves you just as you are. And even as a little girl, I knew that there were things in the world that weren't right. Some of you who have kids, you, you know that in their little hearts, they understand there's some things that just aren't right. There's some things that are wrong in the world and in their own life. And as a little girl, I understood that. And so I began to understand why God needed to make the wrong things right. Because there was things around me that were wrong. And with our little kids, we call, we sometimes say, God makes the wrong things right or God makes the sad things untrue. And as a little kid, I knew that sometimes my own choices were a part of making sad things happen. And I wanted the sad things to be untrue, even if they were things that I was responsible for. I've been confessing lately that I wasn't the easiest child. Have you noticed that I've been confessing that multiple times? I don't know why I'm doing that. I have no idea. I just keep being like, yeah, I was kind of a tough kid. Oh, high school was rough. I I don't know why that confession is coming out of me. Maybe it's like a warning for some of you who have those precocious children. Or maybe it's like, to encourage you, but you can decide if it's a warning or an encouragement. Because precocious, rambunctious children, this is what happens. Consider yourself warned. But even as a little girl, I understood this. I understood where, what this was about. And so, when we grow up in the church, and not all of you have, but we all have, until this moment in time, some sort of, of, of experience of faith, okay? And when we grow up in those different environments, some of you might have a similar experience to me where you look and you realize when you look back, the faith stream or the faith community or the church uh, kind of group that you were a part of tends to emphasize different theologies. Have you noticed that? And we've been talking here at Mill City about what it looks like to embrace and engage uh, a breadth of what God's trying to say through Scripture. And so when it comes to this conversation of the atonement or what Jesus accomplished on the cross, Some of us who grew up in the church, like me, can look back at our faith stream and say, oh, there's kind of one of the many wonderful perspectives. There's kind of one that my faith stream kind of focused on. So for me, my faith stream tended to focus on what is called the substitutionary atonement theory. Okay? The substitutionary atonement theory. And it's an important view of the atonement. And I'm going to talk about that one today because I think it's very important. But it's not the only one, and it's not the only important one. As we're talking every week of this conversation about the different perspectives. And as I got older, maybe you can resonate with this, as I got older and I started to learn more about the Bible and I started to experience different communities of Christians, I started to feel a little bit cheated. I was like, well, who didn't tell me about all these other things? Did anybody else feel like that sometimes? And and I began to understand the breadth of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And you guys, it blew my mind. Let me tell you now, as I look on my life now and I understand Scripture in this way, I think it's so amazing that the theories of the atonement are some things that are not mutually exclusive. Does that make sense? You don't have to adhere to this view or this view or this view because the way that atonement is talked about in Scripture is to express to humanity the breadth and the amazing reality of what Jesus did on the cross. You don't have to listen to all these sermons and go, well, I like that one the best. That's the one I pick because it doesn't match up with the other ones. They are not mutually exclusive. Together, they come together to form this amazing reality. So the the reconciliation theory, the Christus Victor theory, the adoption theory, the the substitution atonement theory that I'm going to talk about today, the, the moral example theory, they all come together for us to understand the breadth of what Jesus has done. They're not like other theologies. Have you noticed with other theologies at times they're at odds with each other? These are not at odds with each other. They come together in an important way for us to see as humans how powerful and incredible it is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And many people would say that even with all these beautiful examples, the breadth of understanding is that our human brains can't even comprehend how amazing it is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. But these beautiful pictures help us, don't they? So we've been pulling from a number of theologians, but one of them is Scott McKnight uh, in this book called A Community Called Atonement, and he actually references a lot of different theologians here. And uh, I'm just going to put a quote of his up here on the screen. He's talking about these metaphors. A metaphor of atonement is a set of lenses through which we describe God's acts of resolving sin and bringing humans back home in their relationship with God, with self, with others, and with the world. So he uses the term lenses there. We also talked about uh, it being like a golf bag where you bring your golf clubs and you don't use all of the golf clubs at once but you need all of them and they're all important. So it's kind of like that. All the views of the atonement can be used at their proper time to help us understand something. Or like paint brushes in a jar that all have different widths and different sizes and they do different things depending on what you want to paint. And you grab a different brush but they're all needed. That's like what the breadth of the understanding of the atonement is. So really quick, I want to put some slides up that Mike had a few weeks ago. Uh, the first one being what, what is the biblical language we see for sin, okay? And these slides are all on our website, millcitychurch.com. When you go to the, to the sermons, you can get all these, okay? So biblical language for sin, we see a number of different words. Oppression, defiance, rejection, wickedness. There's lots of ways that Scripture talks about this reality of sin. And the problem that sin creates is many, okay? The problems... God is holy and can't ignore human sin. People are enslaved to sin. People are separated or alienated from God. God's creation is broken and distorted because of sin. People don't know how to live God's way of life because of this brokenness of sin. And the world is full of injustice because of sin. You don't have to look far to see that there's that injustice everywhere we turn. Sin is this this way in which the the distortions of God of what God had made is distorted in four ways distorted in our relationship with God with ourselves with other people and with the world that God loves and you see all these ramifications and so then we have these beautiful metaphors of the atonement reconciliation ransom substitution justification redemption sacrifice salvation light there's even other words but we're going to talk about four of them in one passage today you guys four all right these are the four and I want you to look at them, because when I read this passage, I want you to look for them. I underline them in the passage so you'll notice them, okay? But I think this is important, you guys, because um, we, while we can never fully grasp and understand how amazing it is what Jesus has done, if we have a shallow understanding of what Jesus has done, it keeps our faith at a shallow level. And as we deepen our understanding of the reality of what Jesus has done, I think and I've experienced and I've seen in lots of your lives that we are able to deepen our understanding and our love for who God is in our lives. So the purpose of this conversation is that we grow in our depth of understanding. And so here's my hope, my deepest hope for you. My deepest hope is that it will bring us to a deeper commitment to Jesus, a deeper love for Jesus, a deeper desire to worship Jesus, and ultimately a deeper desire to embrace our calling to join into Jesus' mission in the world. So today I want to look at a text in Romans 3, the one that I just mentioned, but I'm going to look at a few more verses. So if you have a Bible, pull out Romans 3, 21 through 26, um, and you can pull it up on your phone, on your whatever you have, or we'll have it up here on the screen. This is a letter in the book of Romans. It's a letter written to the church in Rome by the Apostle Paul, who's one of the early leaders of the church. And he's writing to them and he's wanting to express a lot of things that happen to be very theological. So if you've read through the book of Romans, it probably packs in more theology than any other one single letter. And I kind of think, in my opinion, that these like five verses pack more theology in them than any other five verses in the whole Bible. You ready for this? I just get like just like a blank stare. Okay, so let's read it together and I want you to look for the uh, atonement metaphors as I read it out loud, okay? A few other people, their brain kind of spins when they read that. No, just me? Okay, thank you, Isaac. When I read that, my brain's just like, whoa, slow down. So I decided we're going to do something here that we've never done before. Are you okay with that? Everyone's like, okay, you don't have a choice, actually. We're going to do something that I'm going to call seminary for everyone, all right? Now, seminary is pastor school, all right? Master's programs for pastors. And all of your pastors have At least one of those pastor school degrees and and Dr. Michael Bender has two because he's got a doctorate from a seminary. But here's the secret. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. To understand the Bible and to read it well, you don't have to go to seminary. You can find some pretty great online tools that help you to look at the depth of meaning of some of these big words here. You all can do that. And that's why we're going to have seminary for everybody right now. All right? And maybe if we like it, Phil will find us some cool quippy music and next time we'll have like a little jingle before the segment. Seminary for everybody, boom, and then we start. But if you really are, like, nerding out about this, please sign up for Mike's class on this topic because you will love it, all right? So, seminary for everybody, you ready? Sit up, sit up, bring your brain, we're going to do it. I love that some of you actually sit up, that's good. Sit up, whoop. All right, so, follow along here. The first thing, righteousness. Big word. It's actually almost exactly the same word as justice. In the Old and New Testament, God's righteousness or justice, making wrong things right, a good way to think of it as rightness, God's rightness. Nobody has rightness on their own. God is the only one who has perfect rightness or righteousness. And so God trades or substitutes our unrightness for his rightness. And that's what it means for this righteousness to be something through Jesus substituting for us. In verse 22 and 23, this rightness is given for all who believe in faith in Jesus Christ, to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. Very important phrase. Would have been a little bit shocking to the people who heard this letter. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. That means what Jesus did is for everyone. It's hard to describe how big of a deal that would have been to the people who heard this letter written, read to them uh, from Paul. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What's glory mean here? God's shiny or something? No. Perfect goodness. God's perfect goodness. God is the only one that is perfectly good. So then, for all have sinned. Sinned, what we mentioned earlier. Distortion in four ways. Distortion in our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, with other people, and with the world that God loves. All have experienced this distortion and participated in this distortion. It's everywhere. It's all around us. We've all participated in that, and that's why none of us are perfectly good. And all are justified freely. Okay, so what does this mean? If this is a reality, if sin is the problem, we've been talking about how sin is the problem, the problem that creates all the other problems, then how can we have rightness? The answer is in this word justified, justification. The right-making work of God. Whenever you see that word justified or just justification, it is the right-making work of God. Only a being like God can make wrong things right, and that's through justification, the right-making work of God. God's making the wrong things right inside of you and inside of me and inside of this world and inside of our relationships with him and with each other. This right-making work of God. So God does this then, next slide. God does this by presenting Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Okay, so when you hear sacrifice of atonement, we think of a number of different things, but what we don't think of is what is called the mercy seat in the temple that all the Jewish people hearing this would have thought of right when they said the sacrifice for atonement. They would have pictured in their mind this, what they called the mercy seat, this altar where the blood of an animal would be placed, a pure animal, as atonement, sacrifice for people's sins, and, and they would have pictured that right away. And we hear this and that's not what we picture, so it's important that we recognize the the first hearers of this would have thought right away about the temple. They would say, wow, Paul's making a, a reference to this temple that has become the center focus of the Jewish faith. And then he continues on to talk about blood. All right, now, when I was a kid and we started talking about blood all the time, I was like, why are we talking about blood all the time? Once again, if you were somebody listening to this and you heard a phrase, talking about blood... You wouldn't have thought of, I don't know what we think of, gory movies or something like that, um, or, you know, paper cuts. I'm not sure what you think of, all right? You would have immediately thought of life. Blood being shed didn't represent death in the same way we think of it. It represented life. So whenever you see a reference to the blood of Jesus or the blood of the Lamb, it's about life. It's about full life. And so then, Jesus demonstrated his love for us, This rightness, which is motivated motivated by love. Put the next one up there. Jesus became a human to demonstrate this love. To identify is the word that we use theologically. Jesus identified with us by becoming a human. And he did that because of love. He demonstrated his rightness and his desire to make the wrong things right. A love that was so deep that it could take on all of the brokenness of the world all the things that the humans were suffering and had suffered other people by what they had chosen, all of what what might seem like a punishment or something, he took it to death with him. So think about this. Sin has to be put to death. Sin is put to death along with Jesus so that all the wrong things could be made right. The problem of sin can only be solved if it dies, if it's put to death. Sin has to die. Inside of you, inside of me, inside of this world, there's things, we know this. There's things inside of us that need to be put to death. Distortions of what we think about ourselves. Distortions of what we think about other people and how we behave towards other people. This isn't who we want to be. This isn't who God made us to be. It's a distortion of that. We need it to be put to death. And so God does what we cannot do and puts sin and brokenness to death. By taking it on himself as a substitute. That's where we get that word, substitute. So, finally, that those considered righteous would be the ones who have faith in Jesus. Who would choose to say, the right-making work of Jesus is what I want to embrace for myself. Those who are considered righteous by God are those who trust Jesus for their right-making. Because I don't know about you, but I've tried and I can't do that right-making work myself. I've given it my best effort, and I can't do it myself. We cannot do something. It's something that only God can do. So I remember growing up in Sunday school and hearing when people said that you were justified, I heard them say, okay, that means you're, it's just as if I'd never sinned. Did anybody ever hear that? Just as if I'd never sinned. Think about that. It's true. It makes sense for this conversation. And so Paul's already brought up the imagery of the Jewish temple, And now Paul's intentionally evoking this kind of courtroom imagery here, this kind of forensic imagery here. So who's the crime drama people? Raise your hand. Some of you love the crime dramas. That's it. Who who hates the crime dramas? Oh, okay. Well, when I was in college, they had a forensics class, and nobody would sign up for it, and then they called it CSI class. And everyone went. Siri and I were there. Everybody went to class because it was crime scene investigators. But it was really just talking about DNA and stuff. So Paul's invoking this courtroom image, this idea of, of being tried by a court of law and being found guilty. There is forensic evidence against us, individually, but also against humanity. There's forensic evidence against us, and at the last minute, like the twist in the plot of a CSI episode, he takes the place of the people who are guilty in the punishment and, and the punishment that was deserved by the person on trial is now taken by this other person. He is then a substitute, okay? And to this image, I join with Paul and I give a resounding yes, followed by a very strong and, because you know how people talk about a metaphor breaks down? This metaphor breaks down pretty quickly. Most scholars would suggest that we can easily over or make it too judicious what Jesus has done. And the danger in doing that is it reduces it to some sort of monopoly, get-out-of-jail-free card. And it, help, it keeps us from understanding the deep transformation and we turn it into kind of a transaction. Because the image of a courtroom is limited. It's a limited image for us to understand the breadth of the atonement. It's just one perspective. Just like all the other metaphors in the, in the jar, all the other metaphors of the, the jar of the paintbrushes and all the other metaphors in the golf club bag, they're not extensive enough to describe what Jesus has done. Because, yes... Jesus has taken our place and substituted for the sin and the brokenness. But Jesus has also offered his rightness to us. Taking away unrightness and offering rightness. It's the great exchange. Jesus becomes what we are so we can become what he is. He gives us a new heart. He gives us a new life. Not a perfect life before eternity, but nevertheless a new life. We are broken humans and Jesus becomes a broken human. Literally and metaphysically, this is what Scott McKnight says. Jesus identified with us by becoming a human, but identifies with us all the way down to death so we can be incorporated in him and find life. This is not a small thing, being incorporated into the life of Jesus. That's what we mean when we say we're in Christ. This is the great exchange, you guys. The great substitution, the great exchange, Jesus trading, everything that we are is shuffled over to Jesus and everything that Jesus is, is shuffled over to us. Let me tell you what I mean by, by kind of finishing up with a personal story of this in my own life. Let's go back to uh, when I was in college, my first year of college. This is 2001, 2002, okay? Just to be completely upfront with when that was for me, all right? 2001, 2002, my freshman year of college. You want to know what the problem with college is? You learn stuff. Now, you know you learn stuff, but you learn things that you wish you didn't know. Like what happens to your body when you eat too much pizza. You learn that in college. You learn why there's a Facebook status called It's Complicated. There wasn't Facebook when I was in college, but you know why It's Complicated exists as a relationship status if you've been to college. You learn all these things that you can't unlearn. And I remember learning about all these things when I was in college that I couldn't unlearn. I learned in college about the fact that there's more humans that are experiencing slavery in the world today than there ever has been in human history. I learned when I was in college what it meant that, people, that kids in my city were going hungry. I learned about the deep ramifications of racism on our entire world and system in life. I learned in a new way how much humans could hurt each other, even at my Christian school, how much we could hurt each other and how many times we could really sin against each other, right? And then 9-11 happened. You can't unknow the things that you know, can you? And I learned some new things about myself that I wish I didn't have to know. I learned about how selfish I was and how I couldn't really live with these people very well who actually were very similar to me. And that was so frustrating And I learned uh, about how uh, easily I could hurt other people and how easily I could hurt myself. And then I would be so frustrated with myself and be like, why did I do that just to do the same thing like the next week? And then came the summer and I had some really tough relationships and some falling out with some close friends. By the time we ended our freshman year, I was not doing so well. And I went into the summer of my freshman year, after my freshman year, as a 19-year-old with some very strong emotions, all right? It wasn't pretty. And I was working on campus in a cubicle with no windows by myself, and if you know me, that was a very bad situation for me. In a cubicle with no windows by myself, but the reality was is that God was working on my heart, and I don't know how to explain it any better than this. But that I was I was experiencing uh, this anger. I'm sitting in this cubicle, and I'm just angry. I was angry at God. I was angry about all the injustice in the world. I was angry about how some things didn't go the way I wanted them to go and my relationships were suffering. I was angry at myself because I kept feeling like I kept messing things up. And this one day I was uh, supposed to be working, but I was kind of praying and lamenting and talking to God, and I was just like, God, why do you let some of this stuff happen? Why do you let some of this stuff happen in the world? And not just to me, but why do you let some of it happen to me? Why do you let... The world that you say you loved, the world that you said you died to save, go through so much pain. And I'm sitting in that cubicle, and this is when I, don't, I just don't know how to explain it. All of a sudden, I felt this heavy weight, like it was physically upon me. And I felt like the weight of all of the brokenness in my whole life was on top of me at the same moment. And it was like the walls of the cubicle were pressing in on me. So I did what any other normal person would do, and I ran out of my cubicle and out of the office... Uh, without telling my coworkers where I was going, and I ran to an elevator shaft that it was summer, so people weren't using it, and I took the elevator to the fourth floor where nobody was going to be in the summer, and I sunk down in that elevator, and I started sobbing. And all of that anger all of a sudden just overwhelmed me, and it started to feel like sorrow and sadness. And I just pleaded with God as I sat on the floor of the elevator. I said, take it away, take it away. And he didn't right away. And it was in that moment that I began to understand the great exchange in a new way. It was in that moment that I think I f- truly felt what it was like to have a broken heart. I mean, I think that I'd gone through plenty of loss in my life, but this was different. My anger turned to sadness, turned to deep sorrow, and I sobbed, and I sobbed, and finally this peace came over me, but I was still so sad, and I knew This is what it feels like to have my heart broken for what breaks God's heart. And in that moment, I felt the weight of a broken heart like I'd never felt before. What we often call God's wrath or God's anger, it's used different ways in Scripture. I think the best way to describe it is that God has a broken heart. God has a broken heart like a parent who watches his children hurt each other. God's heart is deeply full of sorrow and broken. Imagine God, this heavenly father full of love, watching a teenager that he loves go into a high school in Florida and shoot 17 other kids that he loves. Can you imagine the anguish that he must have felt? How is it possible that someone that he created could be committing such an evil? But that 19-year-old kid has a story broken of brokenness, laden with brokenness, doesn't he? And here you have Jesus' reality that he died for him too, out of love, to make the wrong things right out of his life too. But of course, the victims want justice. And God is a God of justice. So he takes it upon himself in his broken heart. And Jesus does that with the hope that we would join him in believing that there's nobody beyond redemption. Not one person beyond redemption. The only way God's broken heart can be mended is if the problem of sin, this destruction that hurts his kids, is put to death, is conquered, is defeated, is struck powerless, and only God could do that. When I sat on the floor of that elevator, I came to a totally different understanding of the sin problem. It was found in the heartbreak. I've come to call that my elevator moment in my life. Jesus did something that I could not do. It helped me understand why I could come to Jesus just as I am, in a totally new way. And I've come to Jesus so many times in my life since then, and what I can tell you is that his grace is unending. So I don't know if you've had that kind of elevator moment in your life, but I look back on that and it changed the entire trajectory of my life because it's in that moment that my heart was set on fire for justice because I saw for the first time that it was about love and mercy and not something as small as a mere punishment. So, being justified did mean just as if I'd never sinned but it also meant just as if I'd never been separated from God, just as if I'd never truly been alone, just as if I'd been given a new heart, just as if I'd been invited into the mission of a God who's making the wrong things right, just as if all the wrong things are made right because someday they all will. And that's the hope that we live in and this expectancy that we live in. I'm going to have the band come up. And I don't know if you've had an elevator moment like I'm describing in your life. I know I've had other ones in that way in my life since that summer. A moment where God breaks your heart for what breaks God's heart, the things that God breaks God's heart about your life and my life and the world. But I, maybe this moment can be one for you. There's no elevator in here, so you're going to have to call it something else. But maybe this can be a moment for you where you think about that. Maybe this season of Lent, my prayer for you is that Jesus would come into this season of Lent in a way that helps you have a deeper understanding of what he's accomplished at the cross. And as we celebrate communion, as we come together to to take the body of Jesus that was broken for us and the blood of Jesus that was shed to us, we come forward for the great exchange. Just as we are, we get to come. If you're new with us, um, you're invited to join into communion, and you don't have to be a member of our church if you're a follower of Jesus. We'll have two lines here where you can come down You can take some bread, dip it into the cup, and then I'll ask the prayer team to be on these walls. If you want somebody to pray for you, let them do that for you. And this is the prayer that I invite you to pray this morning. It's going to be sung in this song. Thank you, Jesus, just as I am, I come. Hallelujah, oh, what amazing love. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would allow each one of us to experience your great exchange. We love you. We thank you for what you're teaching each one of us and for wherever we're at, we pray that you'd meet us where we're at. Some of us have a lot of questions. Some of us are unsure. Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you for the opportunity to come to you with our questions, that you're not afraid of those things. Thank you for the great exchange made possible by what you've done for us. It's in your name we pray, amen pray. Jesus, we thank you that you loved the eight billion broken humans on this planet. And if you gladly chose surrender, we want to choose it too. And if you gladly chose to love them, we want to love them too. But we can't do it without you and we can't do it without what you've done for us. So God, I pray that you would empower each one of these people to step out of this place into a world that you love with an overflow of your love Uh, over and flowing out of their life onto the lives of the eight billion broken humans on this planet that you so deeply love. Each one that sits next to them, that lives next to them, that works next to them. God, will you send us as you sent your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.